If you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We have the uh, feeling because the scriptures are broken down into chapters and verses that somehow each chapter is kind of independent of the rest of the chapters. And because we're starting a new chapter, therefore we're starting a new thought. And especially in the epistle of the Hebrews, not so much because the writer continues to build upon what he has said before to make the statements he's saying now. And so the difficulty is, in, in reality, to really give a full explanation of the beginning of chapter 3. I have to re-preach chapter 1 and chapter 2. And since we all want to get somewhere, we won't do that. But that's kind of, so what I encourage you to do is to continue to go back, even though we've covered these chapters, that the covering of the chapters is just the beginning of understanding those chapters. And as we go further, it gives us more understanding. Because the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure that we understand this one thing, that Jesus is supreme. And he's going to make a number of times that he's going to compare Jesus with other things. We saw in the previous chapter that he compared Jesus to angels. We're going to see him comparing later uh, to uh, priests and to those types of things. And in this half of the chapter, we're going to see that he's going to compare Jesus to Moses. All of that showing that Jesus is superior to those. And so in chapter three, starting with verse one, it says, therefore, that's why I said, it's therefore, because he says, because of what went before, I'm going to talk about what goes on now. So it's because of this, that, because Jesus is the creator, because Jesus is the sustainer, because he is the exact representation of God, because he did make, um, uh, atonement for sins, that he did sit down at the right hand of God, that he is Savior, that he is that who sanctifies, and that he is that who is the conqueror, and he is that who is the helper. Because of all of those things, therefore, holy brethren. Now, unfortunately, because of our lives, we have a tendency to not think we're holy. But God calls us holy because it's not what we do to make us holy. It's what he has done to make us holy. He has set us apart for his purposes. So we are holy, not because of your doing, but because of Jesus' doing. Because he's the one who sanctifies. He's the one who calls. So you are holy. So... We need to stop thinking about how lowly we are, but what God has done for us. We all too often think about our position rather than what God has given to us. So it says, therefore, holy brethren. He has called us to be brothers and sisters together. Now, in our world, the Word you'll hear used a lot, whether it's in commercials or in speeches by politicians or by others, you'll hear the word community a lot. 
to give to the community, part of my community. And you'll hear community over and over. Jesus didn't make us a community. He made us a family. And that's more personal. That's more direct. We are family. We are brothers and sisters because of the Lord. We may not share the same DNA, but we share the same blood. And he has called us that we are family, more than just community. So we are not only family, but we are a holy family, a set-apart family, one for that. And this is partakers of a heavenly calling. We are participants in something. We are partaking of this, which is a heavenly calling. So heavenly means that it's both spiritual and doesn't originate here on earth. It is a heavenly calling. Well, who's in charge of heaven? God. So God calls us to be his, to be Computer back there is going crazy. I just want to make sure it wasn't going crazy here. Um, he, he has called us. It is God who has called us. So we are partic- partic- partakers, participants in this heavenly calling. A calling that one calls us out for a particular, his own people, and for his purposes. So we are called by a heavenly call. We are called by God. So we are a holy family who are partakers, participants in this calling that's from heaven. And it says, consider Jesus. Notice he didn't say think about Jesus. He said, consider Jesus, which isn't a matter of just, well, you know, I think Jesus is a pretty cool guy and he was a good teacher. And no, no, it says, consider him. Contemplate who Jesus is. We are to do more than just thinking. We are to do serious thinking. We are to contemplate. We are to consider who Jesus is. And that's where the world, I said, and especially the church, tends to fall short because we proclaim Jesus as our Savior, who he is, but that's not all of who he is. So we need to consider him. Who is he? What is his role? What does he do? And I think if we concentrate more on who Jesus is, we'd be less concerned about who we are. Because Jesus loves even me. Because of who he is. So consider Jesus. Contemplate him. The apostle and high priest of our confession. Now notice it says the apostle. An apostle is a sent one. So Jesus was sent, as the scripture says, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to whoever believes in him would not perish, but ever have everlasting life. Jesus is the sent one from God. So consider him. He is not only savior, but he is the one who's been sent by God. And he says, and high priest, which means he's the one who mediates between us and God. As the scripture says, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world's already condemned, but to save it. Jesus came as that high priest to mediate between us and God, to make us not only holy and acceptable, but to reconcile us with God. So he is our apostle. He is our high priest of our confession. Now, there are some commentators 
will talk about confession and they'll say, well, maybe what the writer here says is that there was some kind of creed, like a Nicene creed or something that says, you know, or West, the Westminster Catechism, what, which is a statement of faith. And that's possible. It's also entirely possible that as Paul wrote in the book of Romans, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, that is our confession. It is not our profession. We don't say, because a person can, and the, the uh, demons do. They know exactly who Jesus is. They'll say he's the son of God. They say he's the one most high. They will profess who he is. And people who aren't believers can profess. Well, I think that Jesus is the son of God. But you don't profess when, when you have been accused of a crime. They're not trying to get you to profess something. They're trying to get you to confess something. They're trying to get you to admit. And so in this situation, when we confess Jesus as Lord, it isn't we're making Jesus. We have already done. I confess he's Lord. I'm guilty. He is my Lord. And so I think the simple confession is that, that Jesus, we confess, is Lord of our lives. He is the, uh, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all is his house. The writer of Hebrews is going to use house a couple of times, but I want you to uh, not get sidetracked because the same word you might think is the same thing. We have in English some words that mean different things, um, even though we may say the same word. And so house in two situations is a building or a family that resides somewhere. Your house, your household, the people. You, so you say, my house is full of joy. Well, it's not the building, it's the family. Or there is the house. And, and the writer here is going to use house in two different ways. So I want you to make sure that you understand, and I'll point it out. But he says that, that he, being Jesus, was faithful to him, God, who appointed him as Moses also was in all of his house. So he says, Jesus says he's faithful, and the writer says that Moses is faithful. Now, two things I want you to see here. First, the Jews then, as well as the religious Jews today, view Moses as a superhero. He's the one who delivered Egypt, who delivered the people of God from Egypt to the promised land, except he didn't do it. He was just a mechanism. It was God who was the deliverer. And he was also the lawgiver, except it wasn't his law. It was God's law. He just transmitted it. But he has been given that glory. And so he's the superhero. He's almost more important than Abraham. Although they'll say we're children of Abraham and whatever, but he's one of the tops. And when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Ezekiel, uh, not Ezekiel, Elijah appeared, 
Peter said, let's build three temples. Because he viewed at that time Jesus as being equal with, with the law and the prophets. And God goes, he's my son, hear him. And so the others disappeared. So even when Peter had been ministered to and been walking with Jesus, he still saw Moses as something worthy of having a temple built to him. So he was a superhero of the faith. And so he's saying he was faithful like Jesus was faithful. But the difference is I want you, the writer is going to compare Jesus and Moses. The writer will never put down Moses. He is going to compare and contrast them, but he's going to compare them and contrast them. Not that Jesus is great and Moses had his flaws. Although if you read Genesis, and you re- not Genesis, but if you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you're going to see that Moses, like all of us, have our shortcomings. There were times that he lost his temper. There was times that he... Um, made bad decisions. There were times when he went off to, to do God's uh, plan without following God's plan. We see that he was even short-tempered enough that he lost the ability to go to the promised land with the people because he didn't take God seriously. But notice the writer here will never deprecate Moses. He doesn't make Jesus superior by putting down Moses. He makes Jesus superior because Jesus is superior. And I think this is a good lesson for you and me. We shouldn't compare ourselves because I have greater strengths than you have these weaknesses. And therefore, I feel pretty good because you're there and I'm here. You never compare yourself with somebody else because you're not that person's master. Second off, you're not, you don't have the same gifts and abilities that God has given that person, that God has given the other person, or you. As a matter of fact, we should be more the humble. Some of you, and, I, and I'll use him, but I won't use his name. There was a, a, a gentleman, I'll call him that because he was, and he participated in, in the uh, youth activities and uh, and teenage activities and young adult activities uh, here in our church. And he had what we would call now special abilities. He was challenged mentally. And people would feel embarrassed by him and different things. And yet as I grew in a little bit of wisdom and spirituality, I come to understand that he put me to shame. Because he was here every, every time the church was open. He had three Bibles. I don't know if he could read any of them, but he brought them. Because he knew the word of God was important. And he was here and he participated to the ability that he had. He was fully invested. Me, I'm so bright. I'd, I'd lose what the pastor was saying because I'm off thinking something else. He could focus because... Quote, unquote, he had limited ability. He put me to shame. So there are people that you probably think you're better than. Who in God's eyes, 
are precious. And so never think you're more spiritual because somebody is less spiritual. Don't compare yourself. If you want to compare yourself with somebody, compare yourself with Jesus. So he says, he, Jesus, was faithful to him, God, who appointed him as Moses also was in all of his house. So Moses was not in the household of God's people, not in the building. So just as Jesus was appointed and faithful, so was Moses. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. And so now he's going to use the term house like a building. Up until this point, he's meant the household, the family of, of God, the people of God, not the building of God. Although we are also called, if you will, by being the people of God, the temple of God, the house of God. But he's saying that Jesus is counted more worthy of glory than Moses, just like you would say that a house and the builder, the builder has more glory. So I'm kind of using an example. There was a famous architect, um, turn of the century, and, and, and called Frank Lloyd Wright. And he was a little unique in his architecture. And he, would, he built houses and buildings and even a church, I think, in, in Arizona or something. And so he built, and he always, his buildings were unique. But people didn't say, oh, that building is better than Frank Lloyd Wright. No, they would say, Frank Lloyd Wright is a great architect. And they would want, if they could afford it, a house designed by him because he was an excellent architect. So just as the building said, that's a great building, we like it, we would like to have one like it, it was Frank Lloyd Wright who received the honor and the glory. And the writer here is saying, Jesus, because he's the builder, is entitled to more glory than the building. And again, the writer of Hebrews keeps reminding us of these things because we have a tendency to always look at the lesser rather than the greater. We take a look at creation rather than creator. We celebrate a wonderful ministry as opposed to who God is. We look at angels rather than God. We are always looking at, we're looking at purpose rather than destiny. We're always looking at the lesser. And the writer here is reminding us that God is worthy of more glory, that Jesus is worthy of more glory. Even though you hold in high esteem Moses, and again, he doesn't say that you shouldn't, but when you compare the two, there is no comparison because Moses simply carried out what he was told. So and I'll go on in verse 9, I mean verse 5. Well, it says, for the house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. 
So this is where he's saying, Moses was faithful, but Moses was a servant. He served God. He did the will of God. He was what God had called him to be and do as a servant. And unfortunately, in our history, we don't like the word servant or slave because of our history. But there is an essence in this. What he's saying is there was in the New Testament time, there were slaves and there were servants and there were freed people. And those who were wealthy had multiple servants and slaves. And oftentimes those servants or slaves were treated almost like family. But even if you were treated almost like family, you weren't family. You were a slave. You were a servant. And so right here saying Moses was that servant of God. He was in the household of God. He participated with God, but he was a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken of later so that we might understand what God's will is. So Moses served God, not only by serving God, but by allowing us to understand what God's doing to understand the purposes of God and to understand the necessity that Jesus would come to die for our sins because the law could not save us. Moses had a particular reason that God had called him and used him. And he was faithful in it. But he was a servant. But that testimony exists even to today. But Jesus was faithful as a son over his house. And again, he's not putting Moses down in the sense of, but he's saying Moses was a part of that household as a servant, but Jesus was an heir of all things. He was the son. He was the one that everything was going to be handed over to. It's not the servants that are going to get the thing, but it's the son who will receive the inheritance. And so all of the buildings, all of the household, all of the property, all the vineyards, all that is, and even all the servants become transferred to the son. The son, Jesus, is entitled to more value and glory because he is the son in that household. Moses was a servant. Jesus is a son. But Christ was faithful as a son. If you've had children, you know that there generally is a time when they lose their mind. We kind of jokingly say about 25, they kind of start getting it back, but sometimes they don't even lose their mind until they're 25 or whatever. There's no guarantee when they lose their mind, but almost universally, children lose their minds. And then you're hoping that by the instruction that you gave them beforehand and all that, that they'll return to God and to you and everything will be wonderful. Um, you know, even, even the ones who... Uh, aren't as rebellious, still think that their parents are kind of lame and uneducated. And, you know, and I don't know how many times I've heard people say that 
When I was a teenager, I thought my parents were stupid. And when I got 25, it was amazing how much they had learned between that and then. And that's kind of how we are. But Jesus never lost his mind. He was faithful as a son continually. Faithful. Whereas we generally say, I was faithful several times. Jesus is faithful continually. But again, notice that the writer doesn't make Jesus superior because Moses had his problems like us. He says, Moses was faithful. Moses was good. But you can't compare him to Jesus because Jesus is the son. Jesus is the builder. Jesus is the one who sustains. It is Jesus who we need to pay attention to. And so he's trying to get the Hebrews to understand, yeah, the law is important. Yeah, he, Moses was faithful in what he had to do. And yes, there was a testimony for us to learn. But as he started out this letter, but in these latter days, God has spoken to, to us through his son. So he's trying to tell the Hebrews, yes, Moses is important. Yes, he's worthy of honor. But don't lessen who Jesus is in your honoring Moses. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house we are. This chapter started out by saying, holy brethren, holy family, holy brothers and sisters. But we're not just some holy group. We are his holy group. We are his family. When we say we are brothers and sisters, we're not brothers and sisters of Abraham or whatever in the sense of we are by faith. But we are brothers and sisters because of the blood of Christ. We are because we are his household. We're not his building, although even though the writers will use that metaphor and analogy to use the people of God as the temple of God. And so there are times when he'll talk about a building, but not what he's talking about here. He's talking about our family, the house. Here's the amazing thing. We are his house. We are his family. Moses was a servant, and so too are we. But we are also servants for children of God. We got a promotion, gang. Yes, we serve God as a faithful son or a faithful daughter. But we are the family of God. There's a, even a hymn that says, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, that we call each other brothers and sisters and all that. Um, now today, we just call each other names and text each other and do whatever. But that's not who God called us to be. He called us to be family. which means he's called us to love one another as family. Now, I know in our culture, some people can't wait to move across the country so they don't have to be with their family because their family is so dysfunctional. 
And unfortunately, in the church, there's a lot of dysfunctional churches. But we're his. That's what sets us apart. We're his. And if he can call us with a heavenly calling, and if he can love us the way we are, then should we not love one another since we're brothers and sisters who God called also? Whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. The writer is encouraging us to stay faithful because there are the warnings that Jesus himself even gave about the parable of the sower. There's the seed that fall on hard ground and the road and it never takes shape. It never blooms. Those are people who just never respond to the word of God. Then there are those who fall on rocky soil and because they have no root, they kind of die and, and the Satan takes away the seed and they're not quite sure. And then there are those who seem to grow up quickly and praise God. And yet when difficulty comes in the heat of the day, they die. He says the true believer is the one who sustains, continues on. So we are the household of God if we hold fast our confidence. Do you know how little confidence there is in this world today? One unthoughtful word can devastate people. Well, so-and-so said such and such, and I feel so bad. I think I'll just sit in my house. That was one person's opinion. And opinions are like navels. We all have one. Some of them are innies, some are outies. Who cares? We should have confidence in who we are because it is God who has told us who we are. You may say, why would God call that person? That's the amazing thing about the holy calling. God has called you and me to be on his team. But he didn't pick the wise or the bright or the powerful or the wise or the appreciated or the popular, or the famous, God chose people like you and me so that he might get glory. I like to use football as an analogy. You can have an all-star team. You can pick the best quarterback, whatever best quarterback you think that person is. I have my own opinion, but I won't get that there. We can pick that guy, and we can pick the running backs, and we can pick the wide receivers, and we can pick the blockers and we can pick the defense and we can have an awesome pick team and that's usually how the world these people are gifted we're going to put them on the team and God goes 
okay, I'll challenge you to the Super Bowl. I'm going to pick people who are blind. I'm going to pick people who can't raise their arms above their waist. I'm going to pick people who, who couldn't run 100 yards if theirs and their family's lives depended on it. I'm going to pick the lame and the blind and the deaf. I'm going to pick them to be on my team. And that Super Bowl all-star team may appear to get ahead. But when you look up at the final score, God's team wins overwhelmingly because we are overwhelming conquerors through him who loved us. So we should have confidence, not in who we aren't, but in who we are. Oh yeah, you can sit and you can list the things that you aren't. Start listing the things you are, like his. I'm a child of God. I'm saved. I'm holy. I'm in a family. Stop losing your confidence. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm, well, what's our hope? That we're saved and he's coming back for us. And our hope is steadfast and sure because the word of God says he's coming again. And even if I breathe my last, the word of God says, after I breathe my last, I will see him as he is. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And his word says, if that were to happen, when he comes back, I'm coming with him. And if I'm still alive, when he comes back, the people who have died first get a six, at least a six foot uh, head start. And then those who are alive get caught up in the air to be with him. That's our hope. So you're not the most popular person. So you're not the most beautiful. I mean, watch TV. All the beautiful people are always looking at the problem. I don't like my nose, so I got to fix it. Then some dumb doctor screws it up, and then they got to find another doctor who makes it this way and another doctor. No one's ever satisfied, even the beautiful people. So learn from them. Apparently, God likes me just fine, and what he doesn't like, he's going to make me more like Jesus anyway, so I'm cool with it. So be confident, because you are holy, you're a family, you are a part of the household of God. Because your brethren, Jesus, is worthy of more glory and honor than even the lawgiver. And we worship him and we are connected to him. We are children of God. Confident, bold, full of hope. Until the end. And all God's people said, Amen.